This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Many serial killers stalked their victims. Cream's victims came to him. And to add a level of cruelty, they came to him because they thought they could totally trust him. Because he was a doctor. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Dean Job is an author who lives in Nova Scotia, Canada, and he's written a biography about one of the most complicated serial killers I've ever read about, Dr. Thomas Neil Cream. Cream was a physician who lived in two different Londons, first the one in Canada, and then he was in the one in England. He killed women in both. Job spent years researching Cream's life and his murders and his controversial legacy as one of the many men suspected of being Jack the Ripper. The story of Thomas Cream, where does it naturally start for you? What we have with Cream is a young man of promise. This is how he's described by people who knew him growing up. was born in Scotland, but as a child came to Quebec City. His father was a wealthy timber merchant in that city. And by 1876, he had graduated from McGill Medical School in Montreal, looked to be uh, destined to embark on a, a very successful career as a doctor. But very quickly, he becomes almost a Jekyll and Hyde figure. And, and in 1876, he becomes engaged to a young woman in uh, rural Quebec. She gets pregnant. He performs an abortion. She almost dies. He's forced to marry her and he he then leaves to do more training, more medical training in London. But within a year, this young woman, Flora Brooks, his bride, is is dead. And suspicions all around that he had been sending her medicine tainted with poison and had either killed her or at least contributed to her just rapid decline in health and eventual death. How do we get from this promising person to a would-be murderer, a wife murderer? Why would people even suspect that? We're talking with someone who got away with multiple crimes in three countries over quite a long period. And one of the things that emerges from his story is how much above suspicion he was because he was a doctor, which is sort of wheels within wheels, because one of the reasons he's able to find his victims or they're coming to him for medical help is because he's a doctor. So it gives him access to victims, people he decides he wants to poison. When people die, even when they're his patients, even when he seems to be the last person to have seen them, he somehow is above suspicion because he's this professional medical man. He was in medical school, was known as a flashy dresser, a bit of a dandy, flaunted his wealth. A lot of people interviewed later 
what was he like in medical school when they were asked this question and said they didn't want to associate with him. He just was not a very likable or nice person. And at some point, what he was learning in medical school, which was pretty gruesome stuff, we're talking about Victorian medicine at an age where there were no anesthetics for surgery. Uh. There were no sterilization for surgery. It was a brutal, bloody business. And somewhere along the line, instead of using the skills he learned to heal, he realized that, well, I've learned how to make medicines. I know exactly how much of a dosage of strychnine, which was his poison of choice. He knew exactly how much of that to put into a normal form of medicine or a pill that would kill. One of his professors you know, exhorted the new medical students to be upright and godlike and to come between the living and the dead. And Cream seems to have decided, well, I'm going to be godlike, but he would decide who lived and who died. Do we know much about his family life growing up in Scotland? He was from a very religious Presbyterian family. Most of his upbringing was in Canada, was in Quebec City. He taught Sunday school, sang in the choir. By all accounts, he seemed to be this exemplary figure. Robert Louis Stevenson's story, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, comes out just about the same time. And that was on its face, literally, is a story about a doctor who takes a drug that turns him into a monster. But it's really about this dichotomy within some people, this good and evil coexisting. And Dr. Hyde is the evil unleashed by this medicine that Dr. Jekyll invents. And Cream really seems to be this kind of Victorian figure, upright in the daytime, seemingly professional, yet with this evil lurking within him. He gets out of medical school. He marries Flora. Do you have an impression on what kind of woman Flora was? Well, she was uh, the daughter of a hotel owner in a small town called Waterloo, Quebec. In that sense, they were kind of similar social status. Cream might have been from, uh, certainly from, I think, a more wealthy family. This, by all accounts, was a forced marriage because of the pregnancy. He could have been charged with the illegal abortion he performed, but the solution, for want of a better word, was that they would actually get married. Cream seems to have had no desire or interest in being married at that point, and in fact, the day after the wedding, announced he was heading to London for further medical training. His wife never saw him again. And then within a year, her doctor, very suspicious that she continued to be ill, he discovered that she had been taking medicine, that Cream had been sending her across the Atlantic. And as I said, this contributed to her death. And I think it's pretty clear from the evidence this was his first victim. What was he treating her for when he's sending her this medicine? Not clear. She was quite sheepish when she admitted to her doctor she was taking it. She certainly seemed to have suffered some ill effects from the operation, from the abortion. She trusted him, and that would be the downfall of many patients to come. He is how old when this happens with Flora, approximately? 25, 26. And is this London, Ontario, or is this London, England? Because I know he's in both. Yeah. <laughs> so distinguish know, between your Londons. <laughs> after he comes back, Flora dies. He is in England at that point. He uh, gets a, a very prestigious license from the University of Edinburgh. And armed with that, in 1878, he comes back, settles in a town in southern Ontario called London, and sets up a practice. Within a year, this becomes the scene of the second crime he's accused of because a woman 
woman who had come to him for an abortion. Her body is found in a, an outbuilding just behind where his office is in this city. By all accounts, he's the last to see her. And as an inquest is held, it becomes clear that the scene was staged to look like a suicide. In this case, her uh, face had been burned with chloroform, which had been <sighs> held to her face. And through the inquest, it became clear that Cream was the prime suspect. Abortion is illegal. Are we talking about an, an awful lot of women in Europe and in Canada who are looking for illegal abortions? And, and I'm assuming the mortality rate was quite high. Well, the desperation. One source I quoted in the book described the prospect of giving birth to a child out of wedlock as a living death for a woman. The social stigma, just immense tainting of someone's reputation that would come out from this. Women were desperate to make things right, as was often the way it was put. So when you look at the press of the time, 1870s, 1880s, late, late 19th century, there are constant reports of doctors who are are either accused of abortions, are arrested because of an abortion that led to the death of a woman. And it really reflected just how desperate women were. So what was his motivation? I understand Flora. He doesn't want to be married. At some point early in his career, the hatred for women that surfaces is just undeniable. He killed as many as 10 people. All but one were women. They were either women who were desperate and came to him for an abortion, or they were sex workers. He once said that prostitutes were the scourge of the earth and should be eliminated. It's difficult to know where that switch went off. Was it because he was trapped in this young, early marriage that he got his way out of? At some point, he becomes a killing machine. Hmm. And that's undeniable. However, he gets there by victim three, four, five. He's very deliberate. He seems to be targeting people. And again, they're people that are easy for him to target because they're coming to him. There's an inquest held in uh, London, Ontario. He becomes basically one of the star witnesses because he admits it's his patient. And he also admits that she had pressured him to perform an abortion. He'd refused a large amount of money to do it. Not a lot of people believed him. He came out of the inquest At that point, the jury found it was a case of murder, even though it had been made to look like she might have committed suicide with using the chloroform. It was an open verdict in the sense they just said by persons unknown. But one of Cream's friends later said everyone thought he was guilty. He only stayed another few weeks in London, and that's when he left town. Didn't look like there was an imminent arrest. There didn't seem to be enough evidence, but the suspicion was just overwhelming. And in retrospect, especially when you follow his career, it's pretty obvious he was responsible, whether he was trying to cover up an accident during a surgery or he had just decided to kill this woman. So a doctor who accidentally killed a woman during an illegal abortion in the 1800s would have been tried for murder and potentially have been hanged. Is that right? That's right. There was no legal way to get an abortion in the late 19th century in uh, North America. There was another graduate of McGill, actually, who stood trial and he didn't hang but was convicted of murder. Cream hightails his way out of Canada, and where does he go? What happens? He turns up in Chicago a few months later and opens a practice on uh, the west side. And then in August of 1880, so barely a year after this second death, a woman is found dead in a house in Chicago. He was her doctor, and it looks like some kind of botched operation, abortion. A midwife who Cream worked with, 
and Cream were both charged with murder of this woman, Marianne Faulkner. So another inquest? In this case, there's an inquest. He is sent to trial. The midwife cuts a deal to testify against him. The evidence looks damning, but his family is still supportive. His father has lots of money. And he's able to hire a man named uh, Alfred Trude, who's one of the best defense lawyers in Chicago at the time. An incredible record of acquittals in murder cases and also routinely in the press accused of bribing juries. Whichever method he used, Cream ends up acquitted. Hmm. The evidence points to him. His defense is he's such a skilled doctor. Look at all his degrees. He could have never performed such a horrible operation as led to this woman's death. The implication from his side, from his defense, was it was the midwife's fault. And ultimately, a jury acquitted him. Do you think he did it on purpose? I dug out the court file down in Chicago. I looked at this case in a lot of depth, all of the coverage, no doubt in my mind. But proof beyond a reasonable doubt came to his aid. It wasn't definitive, but I think it's pretty clear, yes, that he was responsible. And ironically, he uses once again his status as a doctor. His claim to be this skilled surgeon in this case leads to him evading justice. So this is victim number three. And again, another case of a missed opportunity. If the jury had convicted him, his career might have ended there. I can't imagine that these two women were not his only patients who requested an abortion. Why choose them? He seems to have had a fairly busy practice. And it wasn't all abortions. He was known for that. But for whatever reason, he would decide, and again, to play God, and decide that some of these patients would become his next victim. So does he leave Chicago after this happens in 1880? Hard to believe, no. He Hmm. reestablishes his practice. He's been acquitted, right? That's right. So he's innocent, according to the court. Exactly. And that's the position he takes. And throughout his trial, the earlier incident in London, Ontario, was all over the press. So it was known that he was a suspect in this earlier death. But he reestablishes his practice. And then two more women, patients, are poisoned. But some new wrinkle is coming into the cream story. He admits their patience and he tries to say, but hey, I just wrote them prescriptions. Mm. The druggists must have put in lethal levels of strychnine. And he's telling the press this openly. He's making this accusation. And in the background, he's trying to blackmail the druggists. So this becomes important because Cream is a killer, but he also becomes a blackmailer. Someone who tries to accuse others of his crimes. So two more women die within the span of weeks in 1881. And he is in the press talking about it. He's not accused outright, but there are eyebrows being raised in the press. What is it with this guy? (laughs) A lot of his patients seem to be unfortunate in their choice of druggists. There are inquests held. Again, open verdicts. He is not specifically charged. He gets away with two more murders. Help me understand the mind of a poisoner. Stabbing and strangling are so intimate. 
what do poisoners get? What makes them satisfied with killing someone via poison? This is another really gruesome or scary aspect to his story. As a doctor, he knows exactly what these poisons are going to do. Strychnine leads to an excruciating death, can take hours to kill, and through it all, I mean, the patient doesn't lapse into a coma. The patient goes through violent seizures and just knows that they're dying. Probably one of the more gruesome ways to kill people. He also picks a way of doing it that he doesn't have to be around. He doesn't have to worry about an alibi. He seems to be getting a sense that he can explain away being their doctor. I'll blame someone else for the poison being in there and say it wasn't me. But he's able to kill from afar. And again, I I get back to this point of this almost godlike power. I decide who can live and who can die, and I don't even have to be there. It looks like he killed his wife. He killed her from across the Atlantic by sending poison. So he can be tied to victims because they've been patients or he's prescribed for them. But he doesn't have to be in the room and he doesn't even have to be around. And there's something about the kind of coldness of that, as you said. So in 1881, these two women die within weeks of each other. This is different because he had waited a year before and then there was a year before that. What is happening? It's interesting to go from a year span to now within weeks of each other. I think you're seeing an escalation here. And now moving forward, it's 1881. He has killed two women, but he seems to be above suspicion, which I'm assuming only bolsters his self-confidence in continuing on with whatever whims he has. Well, very soon after these two women die, the authorities are not able to really tie him or anyone else to the crimes. The druggists uh, are never really seriously suspected of being the cause of this. He meets a woman named Julia Stott from a town, a city called Belvedere, near the Wisconsin border, north of Chicago. And he is treating her husband, an older man. At some point, they become lovers. And Cream decides he would like to eliminate his rival, eliminate her husband. And since he's his patient, he sends a medicine home with Julia Stott, who comes into the city of Chicago to pick it up and to carry on her affair with Cream. So she gives him medicine when she gets back and he dies. It's strychnine. And immediately Cream starts accusing a druggist, demands a postmortem, which is pretty risky behavior because he's the killer. The coroner and the district attorney in Belvedere quickly believe that Cream must be the one responsible. There's an inquest and Cream ends up charged and arrested. He actually flees to Canada, is pursued by the sheriff from Boone County in northern Illinois and is caught just over the border in southern Ontario and brought back for trial. So this is how many inquests and accusations since 77? We're up to six now. Good Lord. And he keeps getting out of it. That's right. One of the fascinating questions I wanted to ask is how did he get away with it? The answer is based on the limits of early detection methods, the undermanning and and undertraining of police forces, the pivotal role of the coroner, who was supposed to be judge, jury, forensic investigator, all rolled into one. Being able to detect strychnine was still new poison. He's brought back to Belvedere, Illinois, to stand trial. 
And Julia Stott testifies against him. Again, this was his former lover. Because she had no idea, she says, right, that this was going to happen. That's right. As things turned out, she actually gives the poison to her husband. So she is very much under suspicion. But she has a deal with the, the DA that she'll testify against Cream. Again, he had concocted a blackmail scheme. He, he promised her she could sue the druggist for negligence. But... It all unravels in court, and Cream ends up convicted of that murder. He is not sentenced to to hang. The jury recommended that he not face the death penalty, but he is sentenced to life in prison. I'm talking with Dean Job about his biography of Dr. Thomas Neil Cream, the Scottish serial killer who murdered from afar using a new type of poison new for the 19th century. Dr. Cream has been convicted of killing his lover's husband, but he won't face the gallows yet. He is a multiple murderer. Why was he not given the death penalty? Not that I'm defending it. I'm just saying that just seems like a a very non-19th century thing to do, not give somebody the death penalty. There's some consternation about a decade later that if a jury had not been so lenient. Yeah, it would have saved lives. Yeah. The reasons for their verdict were never clear. It wasn't uncommon for juries to recommend mercy. I mean, juries at this point in time, they knew what the implications of a murder conviction were. And life in prison was supposed to be life in prison. At this point, he had been convicted of no other crime. As amazing as it is, he's now killed his sixth person, but he has no criminal record. So what happens? He is sent off to prison and that's the end of the story? It should have been. He's sent to Joliet Prison and immediately tries to get out. He petitions the governor of Illinois for clemency, for an early early release. What happens when you've been convicted? Can you appeal like you can now? That's an interesting point because, yes, he could appeal, but he ran the risk of a death penalty being superimposed. Uh, The best he could do is win a new trial and another jury might give him the death penalty. So he did He did object at the time. What becomes his best route, a lot of other offenders at the time, is to put pressure on the authorities or lobby for an earlier release. He claims he's been falsely convicted. About 10 years into his sentence, his family gets on board. One of the allegations that swirls around his eventual release in 1891, so he serves about 10 years of this life sentence, is that he bribed his way out of prison. It would not have been the first time somebody had successfully done that. And his family privately admit they spent thousands and thousands of dollars to secure his release. Now, they say it's on lawyers, it's on paperwork, it's a lot of money, and there is some pretty good evidence, I think, that money changed hands and his sentence was shortened. In mid-1891, he's freed from Joliet, now killed six people. He probably can't work as a doctor again, although he's got all those skills. A madness has developed in him. He goes home to Quebec City. His family barely recognize him. He had spent time in solitary confinement for discipline in Joliet. It was a horrible prison. You know, think of a 19th century prison conditions. Draconian, I'm sure. It was horrible. Exactly. A silence rule. He couldn't speak to anyone for hours while he was at work every day. His hatred of women, his desire to kill only seems to have been magnified by this. It's like it festered. 
because when he emerges and then visits his family, they think he's out of control. They think sending him to England and sending him to London, where he had done some training, where he knew the city, this turns out to be a tragic mistake. But he is sent to London and in the fall of 1891, takes a room in a neighborhood called Lambeth, which is directly across from the Houses of Parliament and on the Thames, that other side of the Thames River. And this is where he becomes a killing machine. So let's talk briefly about this hatred of women, because I've written an awful lot about 19th century men and their hatred of women. It is sometimes hard for me to sort out whether this has manifested itself thanks to personal experience, like I hate my mom, or the misogynistic times that we see a lot more prevalence of men hating women in the 1800s. What do you think? I think it's both. I think in Cream's case, it's, it's working at an individual level. He's never put on the couch and analyzed. There's almost no precedent for someone who murders for the sake of murder, right. which is what Cream did. Other than almost all of his victims being women who either need an abortion or sex workers, there's no other connection. They, you know, he doesn't even know them that well in most cases, or it doesn't seem like they've been long-term patients or anything like that. So there's no personal aspect. But where in his psyche this comes... It's difficult to say because even though there's madness in some of what he does, he never plays the card of not guilty by reason of insanity. So we're left with what the evidence shows. Trapped in an early marriage, does that trigger it? You mentioned mothers. He was devoted to his mother. Hmm. who died when he was still a young man in his teens. By all accounts, he was deeply affected. She had a horrible lingering illness. And there seemed to be some feeling that this had marked him in some way, but also perhaps is why he went to medical school. What's undeniable is the hatred is there. And I think it is magnified by society, by the second-class status of women, by the limited legal rights of women at the time, and just the way women were treated in Victorian society. I think that plays a role here as well. Is he living off of his family's money because he is no longer able to practice medicine, I presume? His father actually cut him out of his will hmm. because his father had basically spent so much money on his defenses. Family friends thought that the stigma, I mean, here was his father, a church-going, upright man, really contributed to his early death. Under the will, Cream was not given any money, but there was provision that the trustees could help him as they saw fit. And they did give him some money to go to London. People know he's a doctor and he uses that status to get access to the poison he needs for his murders. What is 1891 London like post Jack the Ripper? Is everyone still waiting for the other shoe to drop that Jack might come back? Jack the Ripper, as you said, at least five murders within a very short span of the fall of 1888, which are considered to be the most likely tied to one person who's become known as Jack the Ripper. If there was a particularly brutal, bloody murder of a woman, the headlines would suggest Jack the Ripper had returned. By the fall of 1891, you'd think Scotland Yard would be attuned to the idea that there are new kinds of monsters emerging in Victorian society who will kill multiple people for no reason, no motive. Uh, maybe complacency had set in, I don't know. 
But what happens is in the fall of 1891, he kills two women with strychnine. And the first is thought to be a suicide. The Scotland Yard files on this case are voluminous and were just key to my research. They conclude she committed suicide. Although somebody does do a notation saying, well, Odd, though, how did she get a hold of a controlled poison? Then someone is charged with that murder, not cream, and the charges are thrown out. A few weeks later, a woman dies. But in this case, the death is attributed by the attending physician to natural causes. So now he's killed two people in London. He's not even on anyone's radar. Worse, Scotland Yard don't even realize two murders have been committed right under their nose. So what do we know about these two women, these next two victims? in 91. They were both sex workers in the Lambeth area. One of them drank from a bottle that a customer or a man had given her. It was cream and it was laced with strychnine. So dies a horrible death. A few weeks later, a woman, he's been a customer of hers a couple of times. He gives her medicine and says, this will be beneficial. It's suggestion that perhaps she had a sexually transmitted disease and he convinced her this would help her. Anyway, she takes the medicine after he's gone and it kills her. That death is attributed to natural causes. Again, so close to knowing. I mean, they even had a description of a man in a top hat who said he was a doctor. And this is cream. This is hmm. how he looked and, and he was a doctor. He was living a few blocks from these scenes. It's so interesting. During this time period and, and even later in London, the trust that people, particularly women, had and men who just say, I have medical experience. In my first book, which was about a serial killer, John Reginald Christie, he he convinced women to come back to his flat at Tin Rillington Place by saying only that he had a certificate in first aid treatment. And he convinced several women that he worked with who had breathing problems, bronchitis because of the smog, to come back and I'll give you this special breathing treatment, which was a glass jar that they would breathe into and they did not notice that the jar was connected to his gas tap. And it knocked them out, disabled them, and he assaulted them and killed them. And, you know, Christie literally had the first aid certificate hanging on his wall as proof. Cream didn't even have an office. One of his victims actually in her death throes, going, you know, this horrible death from strychnine. One of the people attending her landlady said, well, well what happened? I took this pill from, and they had the name Fred. And so the landlady said, why would you take a pill from a stranger? And she says, well, he wasn't a stranger. He's a doctor. Hmm. The level of trust. And we are talking about people in a downtrodden neighborhood. Lambeth was very much like, like Whitechapel. There's a lot of poverty, desperation. A wealthy looking man who says he's a doctor is unquestioned. He says, take this medicine. It'll help anything from disease to, in one case, it was, you know, you've got some spots on your forehead. This will remove them. He comes up with whatever pretext he wants, but to abuse and betray that trust, very much like Christie. It's almost like he thought he had perfected the perfect crime. I mean, isn't that what many killers and many criminals look for? What is the perfect crime? I mean, the perfect crime is one where I'll get away with it. Well, if he can find this way of killing from afar and his deviousness, he goes to a drugstore in London it turns out to be just around the corner from Scotland Yard. He tells them he's a doctor. They look in what's called the poison book. You're supposed to, you have a list that shows who's an accredited doctor. He's not there. And they said, well, sign your name here. They shouldn't have given him strychnine. They did. 
Hmm. He seems to have taken pleasure from that ability to kill from a distance because he knows. He knows exactly from his medical training what's going to happen to these women. One woman outsmarts him. He thinks she takes the medicine. She palms it and then drops it in the darkness and he doesn't know. And for months, he thinks she's on this list. He even kept a list of the initials of his victims. And he thinks she's on this list. So what happens next? Part of his pathology seemed to be that he wanted, on some level, for people to know about these crimes. He starts blackmailing. He goes through the newspapers. He sees the family physician of the royal families in the news because the royal prince is ill. He accuses this man, Dr. Broadbent, of one of his murders. And he adopts various aliases. He pretends to be a detective. He pretends to be a concerned citizen. And oddly, never follows through. People get these blackmail notes. They go to Scotland Yard. They say traps are set. He never shows up to try to get the money. So why was he doing this? Because this turns out to be a very fatal flaw because some of these letters are written in his very distinctive handwriting. (sighs) Scotland Yard, again, doesn't know what's going on. They think it's just some kind of prank or hoax. So how was he ultimately caught? On a night in April 1892, two young women die horrible deaths in Lambeth. In the same night? Same night. Wow. They live in adjoining rooms, same house. So now there's a double murder. And initially, Scotland Yard thinks it's tainted salmon because they'd eaten some tinned salmon, Hmm. botulism or something like this. Very quickly, there's an inquest done, an autopsy, and it's determined to be strychnine. So now things are starting to fall into place. They now have this reference to a Fred, someone who wears a top hat. A policeman had actually seen him leaving the house hours before. He's put out on the streets trying to identify this shadowy figure. Now they think they've got three, the first victim who drank strychnine-laced liquid, and they discover this mistake of a woman named Matilda Clover, who was thought to have died of natural causes, but had all of the uh, hallmarks of a death by strychnine, and they exhume her body and find lethal amounts of strychnine. One of the tests for strychnine, believe it or not, was the leading toxicologist in London would put a sample taken from a murder victim on his tongue. And if it burned, like strychnine burned, then that was a way of verifying. And then he would inject some of this into a frog and see if the frog had spasms like strychnine. So it was very low tech. I just found that fascinating because it just showed how science was struggling to keep up. There was actually an arms race between poisoners and forensic toxicologists at the time. Strychnine was a fairly newly discovered plant-based poison. Arsenic had been the poison of choice for a long time in the 19th century, mineral-based. But once a reliable test for that came along, these newer poisons that were being identified and developed became more a choice of someone like Cream because they were harder to detect. Now they know they've got four murders, probably linked to the same person. And then the constable who had seen Cream fleeing the scene months before sees him outside a music hall in Lambeth, sizing up women. And that's when the police start to realize, okay, this must be our suspect. Here's another aspect of the case that's baffling in retrospect. 
Cream actually starts befriending a couple of policemen in Lambeth. <laughs> of course he does. Okay. One of them starts to think it's quite odd that Cream seems to know so much about these crimes. Yeah. Well, Cream, when challenged, says, well, I'm, I'm a doctor and I, I read the British Medical Journal and it's in there and it's of interest to me. But that gets a few alarm bells ringing. He actually is invited to sit down with the investigating officers, with this intermediary of this detective he's met. They sit down in a pub, and the two investigators, and this was hard to believe, but later they say, well, yeah, he kind of looks like the guy. He's probably picked up the gossip. Yes, he consorts with sex workers all the time. That's not a crime, and we don't think it's the guy. And what really finally turns it around is a, a very clever detective named John Bennett Tunbridge. He reviews everything. He says exactly what you said. Wait a minute. Fred, top hat, doctor. Cream had a, a condition that caused his eyes to cross. He had to wear very thick spectacles. This was described by victims and witnesses as an attribute of this man they were seeking. Tunbridge reviews the file, writes a 20-page handwritten memo, and the bottom line is, I'm convinced this is the guy. So at that point, they start targeting Cream they get a sample of his handwriting. Now they start finding letters. It all starts to unravel pretty quickly. And this is almost too Hollywood to believe. But the woman I mentioned who outwitted him and he thought he had poisoned a woman named Lou Harvey. She was another sex worker. She reads in the paper about Cream's inquest on how he is charged with one of the murders. And she realizes it's that guy. So she sends a letter to the coroner and to the police and says, no, I'm very much alive and I'm willing to testify. Wow. And there's a dramatic scene where, and I don't think Cream knew this. I don't think Cream knew she'd survived. She walks into the courtroom to nail him. And it's just fantastic. And she does too. Scotland Jarrett thought the women were unreliable. Well, one of those women was instrumental in his conviction. So he's convicted? Yes. Is he in denial that he's been convicted and then given the death penalty? He doesn't seem to have realized. He, do he does by the end. So what happens with Cream when the punishment is carried out? Something controversial. Yeah, there's a strange afterlife of Dr. Cream. If you look at many, many lists over the years, lists of suspects who could have been Jack the Ripper, oddly, a Canadian doctor named Thomas Neil Cream pops up. And this is because he's purported to have said just before the trapdoor was sprung, I am Jack, and then he's cut off literally <laughs> mid-sentence. Here's the strange part of this. This supposedly happens in 1892, when he's executed. Were his crimes like Jack the Ripper? I mean, the idea being that he was about to confess to being Jack the Ripper. Uh, well, he had an ironclad alibi. He was in Joliet prison. Yep. <laughs> so he could not have done it. Uh, so I, I researched this. I wanted to understand where did this come from? About a decade after his hanging in 1902, some news accounts started to surface in some newspapers in, in the United States and in Britain that he had made this gallows confession. Well, conveniently, it was after the hangman who supposedly had heard it had died. So there was no corroboration. And this caused a little bit of a splash and was forgotten. And then decades later, it was resurrected in stories about strange hangings, it started to then take on traction, leading to this absolutely bizarre idea that he could have been Jack the Ripper and was confessing to the crime. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He wasn't there. 
And the press at the time of his execution talked about how he was like an, a Jack the Ripper, but that's as far as it went because there was some resonance. No one at the time seriously even suggested that he could have been. And I am glad to see that more recent roundups, either in the press or in books of who might the Ripper have been, Dr. Cream tends to have disappeared from those lists, and I think quite rightly. What are the lessons learned from this story? Why would this resonate with an audience today? The idea of trust and the idea of vulnerability, I think, it's still difficult even in our jaded times to fathom this kind of depravity, this kind of hatred, and this kind of uh, brutality is wrapped up in someone who should have been beyond reproach. But it's such an interesting look at the Victorian era, the way morality, the stifling morality forced women into his clutches yeah. and how he benefited from this misplaced total trust in the profession. On the next episode of Wicked Words. One of Remus's bootlegger friends in Atlanta pulled him aside at one of their fancy dinners and says, look, you're not going to like this, but I'm hearing things that I really felt compelled to tell you. And Remus in first is in denial and reacts very strongly and, and actually hits the guy, hits his fellow bootlegger, um, then apologizes and starts realizing this terrible thing might actually be happening to him. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 